in my humble opinion, one of the greatest television shows ever is Lost. If you haven't seen Lost, then my advice to you is to plug your ears or leave momentarily because I'm going to share a tiny spoiler. But Lost, in my opinion, was one of the greatest shows ever put on television. Lost was a sci-fi show on ABC that had several storylines. It had some of the best storylines. In fact, it had lots and lots of storylines if you've seen Lost. It had flashbacks, it had flash forwards, and it had flash sideways. And it had some of the best character development and character arcs that I have ever seen. Characters like Hurley and Jack and Kate and Desmond and John Locke. And it had some of the best writing in television history. And as many of you Lost fans know, there are a lot of mysteries and a lot of questions that you have as you watch this show. And there are a lot of questions you have still, even after you've completed the show. There's a lot of mystery in this show, a lot of questions. So do yourself a favor and go home today and start watching Lost on Netflix. And I don't think I'm giving away too much here, but the show takes place on this mysterious island. And at some point during the show, two individuals are trying to leave the island, and they are told how they can be rescued. And the conversation is as follows. Ben, one of the characters, says, do you know how to drive a boat? And Michael replies, yeah, I can drive a boat. And Ben says, good, because you're going to take this boat and follow a compass bearing of three, two, five. And if you do that exactly, you and your son will find rescue. And Michael says, well, that's it. I follow the bearing and me and my son get rescued. And Ben says, yes. And that's exactly how it is for us. We need rescue. We need to be rescued from our slavery to sin. And the only way to be rescued from slavery of sin and the slavery to self is to follow the bearing that will take us to Jesus. And it's, only, and it's the only way that we'll be rescued even after we come to Jesus. See, even after we become children of God, we need daily rescue from us. We need daily rescue as Christians who keep on trying to build up our little kingdoms of self where we reign supreme. Now, don't tell me you don't do that because I know that you do. You think you are king or queen in your little world that you've built up. And you prove that when you hog the remote control. Or you prove that when you get mad because somebody ate the last of your cereal. We need daily rescue from these little kingdoms of self where we worship ourselves, and we need that every single day. We need to be rescued from us. And the gospel is what rescues us from us. We need the gospel whispered in our ears daily. We need Jesus to whisper the gospel daily in our ears. And the gospel coordinates never change. Gospel bearings never change. The gospel always leads us to Jesus. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. The problem is that because we are still sinners, even after we become Christians, we often lose our bearings. 
And because we often lose our bearings, we need to be rescued. But so many times we try to save ourselves through various self-salvation projects. We try to rescue ourselves with us and by us. And therefore, we need to get recalibrated. We often need to reset our hearts to the coordinates of the gospel. And that's why your heart is like a magnetized needle that will not rest until it is pointing toward Jesus. Your heart and my heart is like a magnetized needle. Your heart is like the magnetized needle on a compass and it will not rest until it is pointing towards Jesus. It will move side to side, back and forth until it is resting on Jesus. Now, Puritan theologian John Owen said something very similar to this. He said, only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. The hearts of believers are like magnetized needles that will remain restless until we behold Christ's glory in the gospel. Augustine said something very similar to this at the very beginning of his book, Confessions. He said this, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And that is basically what David is saying in Psalm 16. So turn to Psalm 16. We will be restless until we collapse on Jesus. We will be restless and we will never experience peace in this life until we get our bearings on Jesus. We will never find rest at any point in our lives until we learn to point the needle of our hearts towards Jesus, to follow the coordinates of the gospel To Jesus. And that's where David is at in this psalm at the very beginning. In Psalm 16, David is at this place of relative rest and peace. In in other psalms, David and the other authors of the psalms are all over the map. In, In the other psalms, David is panic stricken, David is worried, David is scared, David is stressed. Many times, David is a basket case in the psalms. And that's what we'll see next week with Psalm 17. But in Psalm 16, David has pointed the needle of his heart to Jesus and he is at relative ease. He's at peace. He simply asks God at the beginning of this psalm to preserve him and to keep him in this gospel-centered state of mind. Look at verses one through two and hear the word of the Lord. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David begins Psalm 16 by asking God to preserve him in this state of mind, in this place where his heart is at, to protect him, to keep him, to keep him in this place, this place of rest and peace that he has found. David has preached the gospel to himself. 
He has believed the promises of God and now he asks Yahweh to preserve him and to keep him in this state of mind, in this state in his heart. In fact, this is the only prayer, the only petition, the only request in Psalm 16. It's David asking God, keep me in this place, preserve me. The rest of the psalm just flows out of David's heart. His heart that has found rest and security in Yahweh's goodness. And so David says he has taken refuge in the Lord. And it's a fitting word to use because the Hebrew word for refuge is used in other places in the Old Testament for someone seeking protection from a dangerous situation. It's used of the shelter that a bird finds. It's used of taking refuge in a cave. It's also used of taking refuge behind your shield when you're on the battlefield. And so when David says, I have taken refuge in you, so preserve me, David is simply saying this, point the needle of my heart to Jesus. I'm scared, point the needle of my heart to you, O Lord. I know I'm gonna drift. I don't know what's happening in my life, so point me to Jesus. Center my thoughts on you, Lord. And that's been my prayer all week. It's been my prayer for me, it's been my prayer for you. I've been praying this prayer all week as I was preparing this sermon, saying, Father, point the needle of my heart to Jesus because my heart was drifting all week. I was stressed over things. I blew it all week long. I was not measuring up, and I know that's your story too. I know you blew it this week. I know you were stressed out about things. I know you did not measure up. And so I was praying for you and praying for me. Father, point the needle of our hearts to your son, Jesus. And this is the perfect prayer to pray because this prayer glorifies God. Praying this. Father, point the needle of my heart to your son Jesus, glorifies God because the desire of God the Father's heart is to see his children love and delight in his son Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's heartbeat is to glorify the son of God. So the Holy Spirit wants to see the needle of your heart point to Jesus because when that happens, Jesus is glorified and that's what the Holy Spirit longs to see. The Holy Spirit longs to see the Son of God glorified. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he knows that your heart is like a magnetized needle that will not rest until it is pointing towards Jesus. And so the Spirit is always moving, and the Spirit is always stirring you and I and prompting us to look to the Son of God so that the Son of God would be glorified. The Holy Spirit longs to see you saying what David says in verse two. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That glorifies Jesus. When you can say that God is your Lord, your master, it glorifies God. And that's what David means when he says Lord here. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. David is just saying what Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae says in his song, Background. He says this, you pulled my card, I'm bluffing, you know what's in my hand. Me, I just roll and trust you, you cause the dice to land. I'm in control of nothing, follow you at any cost. Some call it sovereign will, 
All I know is you to boss. David is just saying that to Yahweh. You to boss. I have nothing apart from you. And when you can say that Jesus is in control and that you have nothing apart from him, then Jesus is mightily glorified. That's what David does here. David's trust is not in himself. David doesn't trust in his prayer times, how much time he prays with God. David doesn't trust in his Bible studies, how much he reads the Bible. He doesn't trust in how much he gives to the church, how much he serves. No, David has sought refuge outside of himself in God. David knew that even though he's in relationship with God, he still needed rescue from himself. And he found that rescue outside of himself. But notice, too, how taking refuge in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, causes David to sing. It causes David to speak. It changes how David views his life. David sought refuge in the Lord, and it changed his songs. It changed his prayers. In fact, it even changed the words to this psalm. And so what we learn here is this. Whatever you are trusting in will inevitably spark your affections. Whatever it is that you are seeking refuge in will inevitably change your affections, what you're thinking, what you're feeling with your heart. If you are placing your trust in yourself, it will either and it will always only lead to pride or despair, always. If you look to yourself and you focus on yourself, you focus on your spirituality, your sanctification, your obedience, it will always either lead to pride or to despair. You will look inward at yourself and you will become prideful at your spiritual progress or you'll get depressed because you don't see any progress. But if you're looking to Jesus alone as your Redeemer and your Savior, and you are resting that you are in union with him by faith, then what it will do, it will spark thoughts and words of worship and adoration. That's what David is experiencing in this psalm. He has found refuge in Yahweh, in Yahweh alone, outside of himself, and it, ca- it has caused him to declare that apart from God, he has nothing. And so in verse two, David literally says, my good not beyond you. The Hebrew language here kind of reads like a caveman, my good not beyond you. David's Hebrew may sound like a caveman, but what he says is what every human being was made to say. David is just saying that Jesus is his everything. He doesn't need anything but Jesus. The needle of his heart is set on Jesus. And if Jesus is the one you look to for salvation in life, if the needle of your heart is pointing to Jesus, then it will always lead to a hatred of the things of this world and a love for his people, the church. If your heart is pointing towards Jesus and you are satisfied with all that God the Father is for you in his son, it will lead to a hatred of the things of this world and a love for his people, the church. Look at verses three and four. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Do you see what happens when you're centered on the gospel? It gives you a love for the people of God and a distaste 
for this world. David's delight is in the Lord, and so it leads to a delight in the church, the people that God has redeemed. That means then that there is something amiss. There is something wrong if you love Jesus, but you don't like his church. If you love Jesus, but you hate the church, something is off. Something is broken in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that the church doesn't mess things up and give you reasons to not like it, because we do. Churches are full of sinners, and churches make mistakes, and churches hurt people, and churches do wrong, and churches ignore wrong, and churches let people down, and churches sin. But that's no reason to stay away from the church. So let me just say this now, and you've heard me say this many times before. This church is full of sinners. Grace is full of sinners. We are only full of sinners. And if you don't know that about us, you will be unnecessarily disappointed. The church is only full of sinners. And because this church is only full of sinners, we will let you down. We will make mistakes. We will sin. And most of the times, we won't do those things intentionally. But because we're sinners, we might do those things on purpose. I told you that we're sinners. We might intentionally do those things. I hope we don't. But we might because we're not perfect. In fact, there is no perfect church. And if you are looking for a perfect church and you find it, it will no longer be perfect the moment you show up. Let that sink in for a minute. Everybody's looking for the perfect church. Great, go find it. Good luck finding it. People leave grace all the time. Ah, I found the perfect church. Well, you ruined it when you showed up. The bottom line is this. If you love Jesus... You'll love his church, his imperfect, sinful, messy church. That doesn't mean it will be easy to love the church. That doesn't mean that it won't be hard. But there's grace for that. There's grace to love Jesus' bride. And I have a feeling that if you pray the following prayer to Jesus, then he would love to respond to your request. The next time you're frustrated with the church and frustrated with the people in the church, I dare you to pray this. Jesus I love you. You don't bother me, but your people do. The church is messy. It's full of sinners, full of people who have hurt me. I know I should love them and forgive them, but it's hard. Will you help me? Will you empower me by the Holy Spirit to love again? Will you give me grace to delight in my brothers and sisters in Christ? I have a feeling that Jesus would love to answer that prayer. I know that Jesus would love to answer that prayer because he has called you to fellowship in community. He has not called you to isolation. He hasn't called you to just have a little quiet time in your house in the morning while you read your Bible and pray and drink coffee and get the warm fuzzies. Do that. You need to do that. But that's not all he's called you to. He's called you to his bride, to a people, to the church, to a community. And if you find yourself in a place where you hate the church, where you hate being around Christians, where you don't seek out fellowship, I think the Holy Spirit wants to gently whisper this in your ear today. Your heart is like a magnetized needle that will not rest until it is pointing towards Jesus. 
When your heart is centered on Jesus, you'll begin loving his people. Not perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. But you'll begin to see that you need other Christians in your life. You'll begin to see that you need the church. And when your heart is centered on Jesus, it will lose It will lead to a distaste of this world. And that's what David says in verse four. He's not enamored by the world, the way the world worships, because he's enamored by his Lord. And that's exactly what he says in the next verses. Look at verses five and six. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is basically saying, that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, satisfies him. David would have loved, I think, what John Owen said in his book, The Glory of Christ, when Owen expounds on the love of God and the effect that it has on us. Owen said this, with such clear ideas of the love of Christ and by worship, you may walk in the paradise of God and enjoy the sweet perfume of his mediatorial love. Finally, do not be content to have right ideas of the love of Christ in your mind unless you have a gracious taste of it in your heart. You may taste that the Lord is gracious. That is, you may experience for yourself his grace in your heart. If you do not actually experience the love of Christ in your heart, you will not retain the idea of it in your mind. Christ is the meat the bread, the food provided by God for your soul. And there is no higher spiritual nourishment in Christ than his mediatory love, and this you should always desire. In his love, Christ is glorious. No creatures, angels, or men could have the least idea of it before it was revealed by Christ. And after it was seen in this world, it is still absolutely incomprehensible. That's what David means here. Yahweh is his everything. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good and now he's walking in the paradise of God and he's enjoying the sweet perfume of God's love and he doesn't want to leave this place. That's why he's saying, preserve me, keep me here, God. Yahweh is his everything. And because Yahweh is his everything, David can say that the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places. He can say, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, the imagery here is one of land. Back in the day when the inheritance would be passed on from your parents to children. But I think David is not speaking of physical land here. I think the inheritance he's speaking of is God himself. I think the, the beautiful inheritance that he's speaking of is Jesus And when Jesus is your beautiful inheritance, when Jesus is your everything, when the needle of your heart is pointing to Jesus, you'll talk the way that David does in the next few verses. Look at verses seven and eight. I will bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David's love for Yahweh is not disengaged from Yahweh's word. David's love for the Lord is not disengaged from the word of the Lord. That's what David means here when he says that Yahweh gives him counsel. Where does David get this counsel from? Where does he get this direction and this guidance from? He gets it from God's word, from God's spoken, God's word spoken to David either through a prophet or through a direct revelation from God or from his word, his law. And so David blesses the Lord because he knows the Lord speaks to him and guides him. And here's what's amazing about the word of the Lord. 
The word of the Lord continues to speak to David even after it has been spoken, even in the night when David is going to sleep. Literally, David says that his kidneys instruct him in the night. Now, that's weird imagery for us, so we translate it as heart. But literally, it's, it's kidneys in the Hebrew language here. When David uses the word for kidneys, what he's referring to is his, his conscience or his thoughts. So what David means is that when he's in bed at night, his thoughts come back around to the gospel, to God's outrageous love for sinners. His kidneys preach the gospel to David. David's kidneys, David's thoughts, David's conscience drifts back to the gospel. David's kidneys whisper this to David as he tosses and turns in bed at night. Your heart is like a magnetized needle that will not rest until it is pointing toward Jesus. Because David's kidneys preach the gospel to him, because David meditates on God's word, then he is reminded that Yahweh is at his right hand and therefore he knows that he will not be shaken. This is what gospel rehearsal does for believers. It centers us on Jesus, the one who is always before us, the one who is at our right hand, the one who keeps us from being shaken. And this is why it is so important for you to be feasting on God's word, to be feasting on gospel promises found in God's word. You don't earn God's love because you read the Bible. You don't earn God's love because you read the Bible through two times in a year. That doesn't impress God. People do more than that. What impresses God is his son. So you don't earn God's love through lots of Bible reading. But you need Bible reading in your life. You don't earn God's love by reading his word. You don't earn his love by hearing it preached regularly. But you need God's word to survive. You will waste away and become emaciated if you are not feeding on God's word. You will waste away and spiritually you will become emaciated if you are not regularly feeding on God's word because that's where you find Jesus. But when you feed on God's word and when you feast on gospel promises, they come back to you and your kidneys begin preaching to you and you get recalibrated by the gospel that your kidneys preach to you because you've been feeding on God's promises. And when the truth of the gospel, when the truth about Jesus gets down into the nooks and crannies of your heart, you'll start talking like David does in the next few verses. Look at verses nine and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol and let your holy one see corruption. David can rejoice no matter what is happening in his life because he dwells secure. His relationship with God is secure. It's not based on what he does or doesn't do. His relationship with God is secure because of what God has done. It's not based on what David does or doesn't do. It is solely based on what Yahweh does for David. And so therefore he can say, I'm secure. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved because it doesn't ride on me. That means the pressure's off for us, isn't it? Listen, if your relationship with God relied on you, guess what? We don't even want to go there, do we? David can rejoice even if Yahweh allows his enemies to take his life because David knows that he will experience resurrection one day. 
Even, even if they take my life, I can still rejoice because I'll experience resurrection. Yahweh will not let David's body decay forever. He will resurrect him one day. Now we know from the New Testament that this verse is really about Jesus because Peter cites Psalm 16. In Acts 2, in his sermon on Pentecost, Peter quoted Psalm 16 to prove that Jesus came back from the dead. And Paul quotes Psalm 16 in Acts 13 also to prove that Jesus came back from the dead. So this verse is really about Jesus But it is also really David saying this about himself. David fully expected to be resurrected. He is confident that his body will not rot in the grave for eternity. He's confident that he will experience pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. He is confident that one day he will be in God's presence where there is fullness of joy. And the connection between David and Jesus is the same connection between us and Jesus. Because we are in union with Jesus by faith. Because we, like David, have been united to Christ by faith. We too will not experience decay. We will be resurrected. We will come back from the dead. We will be resurrected with new glorified bodies. Because we are in union with Christ. And understanding what it means that we are in union with Jesus, connected to him, and nothing can separate that. Understanding what it means to be in union with Christ is the key to our sanctification. The key to our growth, as Sinclair Ferguson says. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death. We were baptized into his death. We share in his resurrection. We are resurrected with Christ. We share in his ascension. We've been raised with him. We share in his heavenly session. We sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ and God. And we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. This, then, is the foundation of sanctification in Reformed theology. It is rooted not in humanity and their achievement of holiness or sanctification, but in what God has done in Christ and for us in union with him. Rather than view Christians first and foremost in the microcosmic context of their own progress, the Reformed doctrine first of all sets them in the macrocosm of God's activity in redemptive history. It is seeing oneself in this context that enables the individual Christian to grow in true holiness. Let me ask you, are you living your life focused on this little microcosmic context of your own progress in the Christian faith? Are you living the Christian life realizing there's a bigger picture and it's what Christ has done on your behalf so that you would be in union with him. And then that bigger picture shapes and changes what happens in your little life. Seeing yourself in this context of what God has already done for you in Jesus will enable you to grow in true holiness. And when you begin to see yourself in that context, there's a bigger picture. It's not about me. Did I read my, miss my three chapters of Bible reading today? Oh, I'm a terrible Christian. 
when you get outside of that little world, I didn't pray today, I'm probably going to lose my job because I didn't have a quiet time. Oh my goodness, it's all riding on me. When you get out of that little microcosm, out of that little world, into the bigger picture of what Jesus has done for you, then you begin to grow in holiness. And then you'll start talking like David does in verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Coming to grips with what Jesus has done for you, understanding that you are in union with him, that's what it means to have the needle of your heart set on the gospel. When the needle of your heart is set on Jesus, you can then say, in his presence is fullness of joy because I'm focused on him and not me. You'll begin to experience pleasures forevermore in this life because you'll be obsessed about what Jesus has done for you and not how you failed him or not how you got a star in Sunday school class for perfect attendance. You'll start being floored, flabbergasted at what he has done for you and then real growth will happen. And so we behold Christ by faith in this world, and by sight in the next. We will see him one day. This psalm promises us that we will see him with our eyes. We will experience pleasures forevermore without interruption. Just as you will see Jesus one day, and when you think your heart can't take it anymore, he'll enlarge your heart a little bit to take in more of him and keep doing it. We will experience pleasures forevermore because there is fullness of joy in the presence of Jesus. We will experience that by sight one day with our eyes, uninterrupted, unending pleasures forever. But until then, the only way that we see Jesus is by faith, by trust, by resting on his finished work as recorded in the scriptures. The more we set our eyes by faith on Jesus and what he has done for us and who he is, only then will the so-called beauty of sin look displeasing to us. Our needles will not stay on course. You know that from experience. The needle of your heart drifted and moved all week long, didn't it? You're just like me. Our hearts will not simply set on the bearings of the gospel and never move. No, our hearts shift. Our hearts move because we're sinners. Because of Adam, we are hardwired to sin and to desire this world and to desire the things of the flesh And the sad thing about all this is that it does not take work on our part, does it? It's natural. Sin does not take work. No one works at being a sinner, do they? No one gets up in the morning like, I want to sin today, but man, I don't want to. I got to work myself up. Come on, get some sin. Don't you want it? Maybe, I don't know. No, we're hardwired. We wake up ready to sin, longing for sin. Being a sinner is easy. It's the easiest thing to do. You were ready to sin the moment you came out of your mother's womb. What takes work is seeing Jesus, gazing upon him, focusing upon him. And it's only as we focus on him that we will be able to fight sin and mortify sin and kill sin. It is only then, seeing Jesus, will we be able to rest in his finished work for us. But it does take some work. It takes work to rest to fight sin, to to open God's word, to, to hang on to a promise, to memorize it, to quote it, to keep saying Jesus is better, to keep saying it is finished, to keep saying there is therefore now no condemnation. That takes work. And then the rest comes. 
See, it's easy to sin, easy to get sidetracked, easy to get lost, easy to lose our bearings. And so we won't do this perfectly. But we come back to God through his word, especially the weekly public preaching of his word, which we then take home with us so that our hearts will later instruct us, so that our kidneys later on in the week will preach the gospel to us so that we get recalibrated and not lose focus. Remember, your heart is like a magnetized needle that will not rest until it's pointing toward Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus speaks to our hearts so that they do point to him when we get lost. When we lose our, our way, when we lose our bearings, Jesus whispers in our hearts to recalibrate us. Augustine knew this, which is why he prayed this in his book, Confessions. He said to God, whisper in my heart, I am here to save you. Jesus is whispering in our hearts today, I am here to save you. I am here to save you from you, to rescue you from you, to rescue you from this little kingdom of self that you have built up where you're the king and you're the queen. I'm here to save you from all of that because there's no life there. Have you lost your way? Did you lose your bearings this week? Did you blow it, not measure up? Do you feel like you're under condemnation this morning? The guilt and the shame is weighing you down? Well, that describes all of us, doesn't it? We will not rest until we look to Jesus. No amount of beating ourselves up will bring rest. No amount of self-inflicted shame and guilt and condemnation will bring the peace that we long for. No wallowing in despair. I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. Uh, uh. That's not going to bring the rest and the peace that your heart desires. It's only when you come to grips with that and say, yes, that's true about me. Now, God, point my heart towards your son. That's where rest, that's where peace comes. It's only found in Jesus. May God point our hearts toward his son this morning by the power of the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we know we're sinners. We hate our sin. It's so easy. Forgive us. Forgive us for not believing the wonderful good news of the gospel. For not being flabbergasted by the truth that you love sinners. That Jesus lived the perfect life for us and died in our place and you raised him from the dead and he's coming again and all of that is true for us. That's our identity because we're in union with your son. Father, forgive us for not believing that. Forgive us for believing the lies of our enemy who would speak condemnation to our hearts so that we would despair. Forgive us, God. Strengthen us through the power of the gospel. Strengthen us by your spirit and point our hearts toward your son so that we get peace, so that we get rest, and so that your son Jesus is mightily glorified. In his name we pray, amen.